Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to Strength in Depth. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to Strength in Depth, a 200% podcast. This is a history of non-league football, from the time when all football was non-league to the present day, when the top end of the non-league game is practically indistinguishable from the lower reaches of the football league. This is a love story, the story of a part of the game which is kept alive by the dedication of those who will not see it die. But it's also a story of corruption, greed and exclusion, and of clubs that live hand-to-mouth lives without such luxuries as fat television contracts and exorbitant ticket prices to fall back upon. Over the last 30 years, the fundamental relationship between non-league football clubs and their supporters has changed substantially. Many non-league clubs are now effectively run by supporters on a day-to-day basis, But as the game at this level has come to increasingly resemble a business, at least at its top end, so have stories of mismanagement or worse. Yet out of this, something else has grown, and at some clubs the supporters are now the owners, mostly after having seen their clubs get their fingers burned by the worst excesses of Wild West capitalism's infiltration into the game. This is a story of 30 years of non-league football club ownership, from 1990 to the present day. The end, when it came, was swift and brutal. Con Dynamos had just played a pre-season friendly away to Newcastle Blue Star at the end of July 1990, when the club's owner, Graham White, called the players into a meeting to tell them that it was over. Con Dynamos were to fold with immediate effect. How it came to this remains one of non-league football's greatest stories of vainglory. White had formed Dynamos as a team for former school friends, but as he made a fortune, so Colne's profile began to rise as well. They became founder members of the North West Counties League in 1982, and then the spending spree began. It accelerated after they won the FA Vars in 1988. Players started arriving at the club on professional contracts. In 1990, Colne reached the semi-finals of the FA Trophy and won the Northern Premier League title, a championship which should have taken them into the GM Vauxhall Conference. Except it didn't. The club's Holt house ground wasn't good enough for the conference. A lot of money had been spent over the previous couple of years, but practically none of it had been on the actual infrastructure of the club itself. Holt house was nowhere near ready for conference football. In desperation, White offered a reported £500,000 over two years to share Turf Moor with Burnley, but this was rejected. There was even talk of the club ground sharing at Bury, 
but this was rejected by the conference because the northern outskirts of Manchester were nowhere near Dynamo's catchment area as a club. With it being clear that there was no ground share that the club was going to be able to achieve, the conference refused Con Dynamo's promotion. What followed from White can only be described as one of the most destructive bits of peak that non-league football has ever seen. Closing the club down didn't give supporters any chance to organise at all. Con Dynamos were no more. A new club, Colne FC, did come to occupy Holt House, but they didn't come into existence until 1996. Throughout the 1990s, a poison spread both through the lower divisions of the Football League and the non-league game. A crisis of ownership was at hand, and the game's governing bodies didn't seem able or prepared to be able to successfully deal with it. Stephen Vaughan is a boxing promoter from Merseyside, and he became involved at Barrow AFC in the mid-1990s. Initially he was successful, and the club won promotion to the Football Conference in 1998, but Vaughan resigned as chairman after an investigation by HMRC into money laundering and his links with the Liverpool gangster and drug trafficker Curtis Warren. He reinstated himself when he was cleared of any involvement. It was said at the time that he had used security provided by Warren at his boxing events and had acted as a middle man in his property deals, but drew the line at money laundering but Barrow were already said to be in serious financial difficulties and Vaughan resigned as chairman again and removed his financial backing in November 1998, although he retained his shares in the club. Barrow were liquidated in January 1999 and a new company, Barrow AFC 1999 Limited, was formed in its place. They were demoted back to the Northern Premier League at the end of that season but their problems were only just beginning. Barrow almost didn't start the following season. Indeed, they started the 1999-2000 season a month late. But this was a comparatively small problem next to the fact that Vaughan had transferred ownership of the club's Holker Street Stadium into the name of his company, Vaughan Promotions, as repayment for the money that he had put into the club before it started to run out. However, the liquidator, Jim Duckworth, smelled a rat and took him to court over it. In 2002, Holker Street was returned to the liquidators, who sold it back to the new directors of the club for £265,000. Vaughan turned up again at Chester City in 2001, but immediately ran into controversy when Chester were drawn at home to play Barrow in the fourth qualifying round of the FA Cup. Since Vaughan still owned shares in Barrow, the FA threatened to expel both clubs from the competition, but Vaughan instead sold his shares in Barrow for a nominal sum to Bobby Brown, a painter and decorator, for £1 a couple of days before the match. He bought them back after the match, which Barrow won 1-0, and then sold them to the directors of the new company for £29,500 but his links to the club weren't fully severed until the court found against him over the ownership of Holker Street. On the pitch, Chester also initially had some success. Having been relegated from the Football League in 2000, 
they were promoted back in 2004. However, in February 2007, Vaughan was charged with violent conduct by the FA following an incident in the Players' Tunnel after a match against Shrewsbury Town. In November of that year, the club held a minute's silence for one Colin Smith, who was announced by the club as a major benefactor to them. Afterwards, however, it became clear was nothing of the sort. Rather, Smith was a right-hand man of Curtis Warren, and had been murdered outside a gymnasium in Liverpool, in what was widely reported as a gangland hit. By the end of the 2008-2009 season, Chester City were in a tailspin, relegated from the Football League for a second time, and deeply in debt. By this time, however, Vaughan Senior was no longer the director of the club. This had been quietly transferred into the name of his son, Stephen Vaughan Jr., in the April of that year. Vaughan Jr. put the club into administration and, after a period of brinkmanship, managed to persuade the Football Conference to allow Chester to start the next season with a 25-point penalty. The club descended into chaos, with a supporter boycott eventually proving to be the tipping point into its death. With a new company running Chester, it took the club just seven months for them to be expelled from the Blue Square Premier, evicted from the Diva Stadium and wound up at the High Court. A new club, Chester FC, was formed by the Supporters' Trust, obtained the lease to the Diva Stadium from the Council and started the work of building the club back up again for the following season. None of this, however, would have meant that Vaughan failed football's fit and proper persons test. Because he had divested his control in Chester City prior to their administration during the summer of 2009, he would have passed this test until he was banned from acting as a company director for 12 years over his role in a VAT fraud while involved at the Widnes Vikings Rugby League Club. Fawn Jr. seems to have inherited his father's knack for almost killing football clubs. Having taken over at Bangor City, former champions of Wales and regular European competitors, in 2016, the club ended up being deducted 42 points by the Football Association of Wales for various matters of misconduct, including a failure to comply with financial obligations towards six of their current and or former players, as well as fielding ineligible players themselves. They ended up in the second tier of the Welsh League system, with the supporters having gone elsewhere to a new club, Bangor 1876. And the uncertainty over Chester City's future continues. They could be thrown out of the conference at a meeting coming up this Friday. Their former owner, Stephen Vaughan, told us yesterday that fans, group City Fans United, were trying to destroy the club. This is what he had to say yesterday. I couldn't care less what the CFU think. The CFU are a bunch of idiots who are hell-bent on destroying this club. When you're making meetings in bingo halls, do you need taken seriously? So what would your message to them be, Stephen? My message to the CFU, if you want a club, you get behind it. You know, they want a club for their own ends. This, this CFU's only being formed in the last four months. They have got no credibility whatsoever. If they want credibility, get behind the new owners of this football club when they take over. Well, here to respond to those comments is the CFU spokesman, Jeff Bags. Jeff, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So this then is your right of reply. What do you have to say to what Stephen Vaughan had to say to us yesterday? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say, um, we're at our lowest point 
125 years history. Um, the club cannot pay for a coach to get to away games. They haven't paid the players for more than one week's wage in the last three and a half months. Uh, Mr Vaughan, who shouldn't be having anything to do with the football club, is selling the club to a representative from an organisation that has no formal constitution as yet. Uh, he's also insulted 900 Chester fans, yet asked them to back the club. Um, however, we're labelled as a bunch of idiots. And I understand that you and a number of fans are going to be voting with your feet at the next fixture? That's correct, yes. For uh, the one game that has been played recently, uh, there has been an official boycott in place, um, which I've seen up to a thousand fans actually staying away from the Beaver Stadium. Problems with club ownership have become rife over the last 20 or 30 years, to the extent that there are too many at which there has been a crisis of some form or other to list here. North Ferriby United, Kings Lynn, Nuneaton Borough, Telford United, Fisher Athletic, Salisbury City, Ilkeston Town, Farnborough Town, Croydon Athletic, Farsley Celtic and Rushton and Diamonds are just a few that have folded and been reformed. But this list is too long to complete here. Other well-established names such as Weymouth, Boston United, Wrexham and Kettering Town have all sailed close to closure as well. Kettering Town lost their ground. Bromsgrove Rovers had to be reborn as Bromsgrove Sporting. Supporters of Northwich Victoria broke away to form their club, 1874 Northwich, after the new stadium, only five years old at the time, was sold. The matter of the ownership of grounds themselves has become a contentious issue in recent years. Non-league football clubs are small businesses, mostly perpetually living a hand-to-mouth existence and largely staffed by volunteers. Some of them, however, are also sitting on prime real estate in the form of the grounds themselves, and the temptation to cash in on this in some way or other has proved too much to resist for some over the years. The problem has been at its most prevalent in London, where the number of non-league football grounds disappearing has been dizzying. Indeed, the problem has become so bad over the last 30 or 40 years that it can feel more difficult to list non-league clubs in London that haven't even lost their grounds, been forced to move somewhere palpably inferior, or else had to fight tooth and nail to provide some form of home for their own. Wealdstone, Enfield, Barnet, Leytonstone, Ilford, Walthamstow Avenue, Edgware, Hendon, Leighton, Kingstonian, Grays Athletic, Aylesbury United, Maidstone United, Slough Town, Dartford, Hillingdon Borough, Fisher Athletic and Feltham and Hounslow Borough are all clubs in London and the South East that have lost their grounds to property development since the late 1970s. And it's tempting to believe that the only thing that has slowed the rate at which this has been happening over the last few years has been that the vultures are running out of grounds to circle. This news report from Hendon in 2008 is not atypical of the sort of story that comes about when developers who know the price of everything but the value of nothing start to become involved in non-league football. Now, most non-league football clubs have been feeling the pinch even before the credit crunch started to bite. And with property developers ready to buy valuable land, more clubs than ever are taking the money. One man has seen Hendon go from a cup final at Wembley to ground sharing with Wembley FC. Yeah, it's, it's sad, really. I mean, it's been going on for 80-odd years. For David Wiltshire, Hendon was more than just a football team. 
The club's ground and social club in North London was a meeting place for friends and neighbours. It was dancing, it was um, weddings and parties and all local people. But since the start of the month, the ground has been closed and the site earmarked for development, leaving the team homeless. It's quite a come down for one of the most famous names in non-league football. Founded a century ago, Hendon won the FA Amateur Cup three times. And in 1955, they played in front of a crowd of 100,000 at Wembley. The FA Amateur Cup final, highlight of the amateur football year, brings Hendon in white shorts to Wembley for the first time. Now Hendon faced the prospect of ground sharing with Wembley FC. But with land so valuable in the southeast of England, despite the current economic turmoil, non-league grounds remain highly prized by developers. And many clubs have cashed in. Typically, land is worth one to ten million pounds per acre, depending on the planning opportunity. That would be far more than a football ground would be worth as a football ground. As the 20th century turned into the 21st, though, fan culture within clubs was starting to change. Protests at football league clubs such as Charlton, Brighton and Doncaster throughout the 1990s had made national news headlines and it was clear by the end of the decade that some fans were no longer prepared to be treated as mere consumers. Clubs relied very heavily on loyalty to keep fans coming back every week, but as time came to pass, supporters came to expect more in exchange for this commitment. The idea of supporters' trusts, formal, democratic, not-for-profit organisations of fans attempting to strengthen the influence of fans within the running of a club, had started to grow in the early 1990s, but it took one group of supporters to set a template that has been used to considerably greater publicity elsewhere. Enfield FC had been one of the most successful non-league clubs of the 1970s and 1980s, but relegation from the GM Vauxhall Conference in 1990 hit the club hard. The first signs of the trouble to come came in 1995, when they won the Isthmian League Premier Division title, but were denied promotion back into the conference on account of the state of their finances. The chairman of the club signed a ground share agreement with rugby club Saracens, which resulted in one side of Southbury Road being demolished to make way for temporary seating, and leaving it short of the ground grading regulations, should they even have a chance of getting promoted. The club embarked on a nomadic existence, playing home matches at Ware, Boreham Wood, St Albans and elsewhere, whilst the owner claimed to be looking for a new site for a new stadium, which never materialised. By the summer of 2001, relations between the supporters and the club had broken down completely, and when the chairman withdrew from an outline agreement with the supporters' trust, which would have seen the trust take over the running of a debt-free club and receiving £100,000 from the sale of the old ground, the supporters took a vote to break away and form their own club. Enfield Town FC was formed on the 23rd of June 2001. Eleven years later, with the help of an altogether more supportive council than had been in place a decade earlier, the club moved into a home of its own just a few hundred yards from the site of the Southbury Road ground that Enfield FC had lost. Less than a year later, the idea that supporters could run a football club themselves received a considerable boost with the formation of AFC Wimbledon. Protests have been taking place at Wimbledon over plans to move the club to Dublin or Milton Keynes for some time, 
and on the 28th of May 2002, the Football Association approved a decision made by a three-person arbitration commission they had appointed to allow Wimbledon FC to relocate to Milton Keynes. A decision influenced, among other factors, by claims from Wimbledon chairman Charles Coppel that such a move was necessary in order to prevent the club from going bankrupt. The FA forbade any right of appeal against their decision. Although the absence of a ground in Milton Keynes meeting Football League criteria meant that the club were unable to physically move for over a year, major organised protests at the decision continued to be held by Wimbledon's traditional local support and a boycott of the club's home matches at Selhurst Park meant attendances dwindled immediately. Following the FA's announcement, a group of Wimbledon supporters led by Chris Stewart and fellow founding members Mark Jones and Trevor Williams met in the Fox and Grapes pub on Wimbledon Common to plan what was to be done next as part of their protest. It was agreed that, as there was no right of appeal, the only option was to start the club again from scratch. On the 30th of May 2002, the idea was put forward in a Wimbledon Independent Supporters Association meeting to create a new community-based club named AFC Wimbledon, and an appeal for funds was launched. With a ground share agreed with Kingstonian, the club began its life in the Combined Counties League for the start of the 2002-2003 season. Nine years later, at the Etihad Stadium in Manchester, AFC Wimbledon beat Luton Town on penalties in the final of the conference playoffs to claim back their place in the Football League. Yeah, immense pressure there on Jake Howells. Gary Bravin's looking on so intensely. And a man who scored the goals, who's led the line all season. What a terrific penalty that was, but here's the man who's led the line, captain of the club. Can he put Wimbledon into the Football League? And one word, Snod, yes. 48 games, two hours of football today, and Wimbledon are down to one penalty kick to take them into the Football League. The fairy tale is complete. Danny Kedwell is the hero. And the fans club that started less than nine years ago are into the Football League and Wimbledon have a Football League club once again. Others would come to follow this lead, the highest profile of which came with the formation of FC United of Manchester. The club was founded in 2005 by disaffected supporters of Manchester United. Although there were varying reasons for their dissatisfaction, the catalyst for FC United's formation was the takeover of Manchester United by American businessman Malcolm Glazer on the 12th of May 2005. Supporters first considered forming a breakaway club in 1998, following an attempted takeover of Manchester United by B Sky B. The creation of FC United in the event of a Glazer buyout was first proposed in February 2005 by the Manchester United fanzine Red Issue. This new club would be explicitly political in its outlook. The players would not wear shirt sponsors and the club made a decision that it would not chase the commercialism of the modern game. FC United rose up as far as the National League North, though this level proved to be a step too far 
and after four seasons in the bottom half of the table, they were relegated back into the Northern Premier League in 2019. More importantly for many within the club though, FC United have built close ties with their local community and in 2015, 10 years after their formation, they moved into their own ground at Broadhurst Park in the Moston area of Manchester. The ground was built at a cost of £6.3 million, using £2 million from a community share scheme and the remainder from a variety of governmental and charity grants. Supporter ownership doesn't really follow any blanket rules though. In East Sussex, for example, Lewis came into supporter ownership after previous owners ran the club into financial chaos in pursuit of a place in the football conference. Since the fans themselves took ownership of the club, Lewis have settled back into life in the Isthmian League and they have become known for their innovations, including their striking match day posters, which have earned international recognition and are now much copied by other clubs. In the summer of 2017, they announced that they would be the first football club in the world to pay their women's team the same as they pay their men's team. More explicitly political still have been the supporters of Clapton FC, who broke away and formed their own club in 2018 over mismanagement by chairman Vincent McBean. Two years on, and after considerable battles, the new club, Clapton Community, secured the lease to the old spotted dog, the ground which had been the home of Clapton FC until they were evicted in 2019 over the non-payment of rent. London's football fans are accustomed to the bright lights of some of the world's biggest and best equipped stadiums. But the capital's oldest football ground has not been quite so well funded. Football has been played at the old spotted dog ground in Forest Gate since the 1880s, but after a lack of investment for decades, the gates were closed in 2018. Now, more than 130 years after Clapton Football Club began using the ground and following an impressive fundraising effort, the club is taking full ownership of the Upton Lane site. It's very difficult uh, to have a football identity, especially in, in East London. And there's a lot of development that's going on and a lot of football grounds are actually disappearing. Um, you're standing on the oldest senior football ground in London. Um, that's it, this is it. So we really, really did need to keep hold of this. Once the site of King Henry VIII's hunting lodge, the ground certainly had historic beginnings and has hosted some high-profile teams from Arsenal and West Ham to Dutch giants Ajax, with a record-breaking 12,000-strong crowd for an FA Cup match against Spurs at the end of the 19th century. The pitch here at the old spotted dog ground tells its own story about how long it is since a ball's been kicked here, but the players are now excited about the prospect of performing once again in front of Clapton's very loyal fans. Very loud, very vocal, um, singing, cheering, um, bouncing, and I think one of the big songs is uh, sort of getting the uh, scaffold rocking. Um, and so, yeah, this is sort of the iconic place. Um, so when we're out there playing the game, well, when we were out there playing the games, you, can, uh, you always knew that over here, they were going to be supporting you to, to the absolute the max. The scaffold were right behind you. That's it, the scaffold were great. In many cases, the collapse of non-league football clubs were caused by issues that came about while they were members of the Football League. For Hereford United, Darlington, Halifax Town, Scarborough and Newport County, the clubs died as non-league clubs, but the seeds of those destructions were sown well before they joined the non-league game. Furthermore, 
Two football league clubs which folded as members of the league found a new lease of life in the non-league game. Maidstone United were reborn from the ashes of the club that folded in August 1992. It took them until 2012 to get back to a home of their own in Maidstone and they got as high as the National League before slipping down a division in 2019. Aldershot Town, meanwhile, arose from the flaming crater that Aldershot FC became in the early 1990s. They worked their way all the way back to the Football League and stayed there for five years. However, familiar problems started to return again in the summer of 2012, when a major shareholder in the club suffered a stroke, debilitating him and creating a financial insecurity that would come to cost the club its place in the Football League less than a year later. In May 2013, Aldershot Town announced that they were in financial difficulties, with players' wages going unpaid. The chief executive, Andrew Mills, announced his resignation, saying that there was no evidence that the major shareholder, Chris Machala, had the ability to fund the club anymore. Director Tony Knight submitted that the club had been hemorrhaging money, and on the 2nd of May 2013, just five days after their relegation from the Football League, Aldershot Town officially entered administration, with debts of over £1 million. It seems reasonable to suggest that, in the case of a number of clubs, problems that came about as members of the Football League only really revealed themselves after relegation into the non-league game. That said, however, it is certainly true that there are as many different routes into insolvency as there have been football clubs who've ended up in that unwelcome position in the first place. It's happened to clubs who own their stadium and those who didn't. It's happened to clubs with bad owners, owners with malign intentions and owners who've been firefighting the disasters left by their predecessors. There is no uniform route into financial difficulty and there is no uniform route out of it either. With non-league football being so vast, there are, for example, 82 clubs in the Isthmian League alone, and this is just one of the three leagues that feeds into the National League's North and South, there have also been plenty of success stories over the years as well. Several former non-league clubs have well and truly established themselves as football league clubs, and Yeovil Town and Wickham Wanderers, the former for many one of the definitive non-league giant killers, the latter long-time stalwarts of the amateur game, have both gone as high as the championship. As the game has increasingly come to find itself in fraud to money though, so has come the temptation to throw money at promotion, in the belief that a higher status would eventually find a way of balancing the books. Some clubs crash and burn in this pursuit, but others do pull through and come out of the other side of it all. These clubs do not, however, tend to find themselves particularly popular with the supporters of other clubs. It's a common refrain to hear words like jealousy thrown around under these circumstances, but this oversimplified explanation tells an extremely partial version of the ways in which this sort of thing really plays out. It is right that the supporters of all clubs should be bothered by one club, or more, overspending on wages. 
in leagues which may only have one or two promotion places from 22 to 24 clubs, an entire season can feel like a bit of a waste of time if one club is spending 10 times as much on wages as any other in the division. Furthermore, the overspending of one club can have an unpleasant knock-on effect on others, who may feel as though they have to spend more than they can afford in order to have any realistic chance of keeping up with those for whom spending has gone off the rails. The vainglorious attitude of some of those doing the spending often doesn't help either. When Glenn Tamplin rolled in at Billericay Town, for example, his spending on the club was lavish, but it wasn't the worst that has been seen at a non-league club in recent years. Tamplin is estimated to have spent more than £2 million during his time at Billericay, but whilst the high-profile signings were headline-grabbing, a lot of money was put into badly needed infrastructure for the club's ground, including improving an extremely poor pitch and building new stands and dressing rooms. The problem with Glenn Tamplin was that he didn't know when to shut up, and that his utterings were so frequently derisory towards anyone who was critical of the way in which he was doing things at Billericay. For someone who professed to be a born-again Christian, his behaviour frequently didn't seem to really be very Christian. When Tamplin arrived at New Lodge, Billericay were in the Isthmian League Premier Division. By the time of his departure, they'd only been promoted once to the National League South. Tamplin moved on to Romford in 2019, with a plan to get to the Football League in five years. Romford have no ground of their own, and are in Division 1 north of the Isthmian League. It would take four promotions to get into the Football League. Tamplin's first decision, upon arriving at Romford, was to sack existing manager Paul Martin and appoint himself in his place. I'm a very strange, slightly insane, tapped guy that is transparent, loves too much, gives too much, and takes hardly anything, but people think it's the other way around. This is about a broken man that got up more times than he failed, that's kept going, that's got seven children, still fights his demons, and he's blessed by the Lord, not financially, but spiritually. I only know, and he only knows, and Dunks only knows, four players that are starting Saturday. There's only four players we believe deserve to start Saturday. This is ghetto. This is ghetto football. This is shit, bro. So the only thing I'm proud of is what I give back. I'm not proud of what I've achieved, I'm proud of what I give back. While the likes of Glenn Tamplin are always likely to hog headlines though, the vast majority of non-league clubs remain staffed and run by people doing so for the love of the game. Indeed, the notion that non-league football is somehow more authentic than the game as it's played at its highest level might even be considered an unconscious hangover from when the big distinction within football was drawn between professionals and amateurs rather than league and non-league. The expulsion of Berry Football Club from the Football League exactly a year before this podcast was recorded was a tremor that was felt through the entirety of professional football though. Clubs had gone bust during the season before, 
both Aldershot and Maidstone United did in 1992, whilst others, such as Accrington Stanley in 1962, had resigned during the season. The expulsion of Berry, though, was different. It was the first time that a club had been expelled from the Football League in almost exactly a hundred years, and the reaction, even though it had been argued that lower division Football League clubs simply couldn't continue in the way that they had been with regard to their finances for years, was one of widespread shock. Astonishingly, even now the corpse of Berry Football Club is still twitching, with its owner still apparently trying to get some version of the club or other back into the senior non-league game. As time progresses, though, this seems almost impossible, and supporters who saw this for what it was have already emerged from the Covid lockdown with a feeling of optimism. Berry AFC were accepted for a place in the North West Counties League earlier this year. They have a kit, a ground share agreement in place with nearby Radcliffe, and have already kicked off their existence with a couple of pre-season friendly wins, while the owner of Berry FC publishes weirder and weirder public statements through his club's official website. After the pain of the last 12 months, Berry AFC supporters are learning to love the game again. As AFC Wimbledon and FC United of Manchester did before them, they will have a lot of work to do in order to get anywhere near the position the old club was in when it had its Football League place taken away. But with their new club owned by their supporters, despite the incomprehensible attitude of the Bury FC Supporters Trust Forever Bury, which continues to labour under the misapprehension that the past can come back, those supporters do at least know that their club's future is now in their own hands, and it will be an adventure to grounds they've never visited before and clubs of which they've never previously heard. Non-league football can be a thankless world at times, riddled with financial insecurity, but it can also be a place for rebirth and to re-establish one's love for the game. <laughs>